streaming live. Yeah, we are. You guys, who let us have a podcast? <laughs> Welcome to the Habit Podcast. I'm Christina Franklin. I'm Natalie Hopkins. And I'm Paige Burke. And welcome. I hope you guys are as excited as we are. <laughs> You're recording. Hi. Hi. You guys. So tonight, Paige is not going to be with us because, oh, Paige, so sad. She's really sick. Feel better, P. We miss Feel you. better. We miss you. Oh, so much. We have another guest on the show today. Our special guest is Alexandra Rule. Hi. Hey, how's it going? Great. How are you? Good. Thank you for having me. Oh my God, we're so pumped that you're here. I'm smiling so big, my cheeks like hurt. You're you're smiling so hard, your cheeks yeah, hurt. I was so. like, ow. <laughs> so we should call you Zan. Yes, that's my nickname. Amazing. So we're calling this episode with Zan Mind Over Matter because today we are talking about the powers of the mind. And we're perfectly set up to talk about it with you because of all of your amazing achievements. And we're also talking about how to rewrite your own story because Zan, as you say, you're the author of your own life. That's correct. Yes. When you said that to me, we talked about this on our last episode when we were talking about the teaser for this one. And Natalie was like, this sounds, what did you say? It sounds like a Sarah Bareilles song. No, a Natasha Bedingfield song. A Natasha, I'm like, are they this, whatever. Like from the hills when it's like the rest is still unwritten. I was like, I love this. Before I know anything about it, I love this because it makes me think of that. So Zan, you minored in occupational therapy, right? Correct, yes. And then you have a master's degree in marital and family therapy, right? Correct, Yes. Incredible. And you completed your clinical work at an eating disorder clinic during that time. Yes. So it was a two-year program. So the second year, we're all stationed at a certain clinic or wherever we're doing our work in order to get that clinical experience. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So to rewind just a little bit, honestly, randomly chose occupational therapy um, as my minor at USC. It was just a small minor, five classes. So I was like, why not? Let's see what this is about. So that kind of introduced me to more of the therapeutic world. And that's kind of when my head started spinning in terms of really falling in love with psychology and the power of the mind. Yeah. So my senior year is when I started really diving into different programs. And I found this one at University of San Diego, which brought me to San Diego where I'm currently at today. And just through my own experiences in college and um, my own weight struggles and all of that, I just really, really was drawn to this program because they specifically were linked to um, eating disorder clinics. And I really, really just started thinking about how there's a, a lot of people in this world, trainers included, who don't quite understand how powerful your mind is when it comes to your eating habits. To talk a little bit about my experience, I, you know, went to college and I grew up my entire life being an athlete and I finally stopped playing sports, went to college. That whole freshman 15 more so turned to, into like freshman 40 for me. You know, I lost a little control. I didn't even know anything about nutrition, how to work out on my own, and it was just kind of a vicious cycle for 4 years. So during this time, I actually had a personal trainer and don't get me wrong. He was amazing and he knows his stuff, but I just found myself very, very frustrated because he would always just be like, okay, well, don't go out and eat with your friends. Don't go to that party. Don't do this. And I'm like, it's not that easy. And he never understood that because he never struggled with weight. He didn't know. He didn't know what it was like to be uncomfortable in his own skin. So that's when I really started thinking like, we need to start bridging the gap with physical exercise and also eating habits, but tying in the emotional and psychological aspects as well. So that's kind of where I started. So I applied for this program and two years later, I got my degree in psychology and I specifically emphasize with eating disorders. You know, a lot of people automatically think eating disorders, oh, you know, the most extreme like anorexia or bulimia. But in fact, overeating, binge eating, rewarding yourself with food, all of these things are disordered types of eating. So 
through my schooling, I was able to kind of really dive more into the psychological and mental aspects so that I could be more of a well-rounded, you know, expert in that field for future clients. So that's what led me to today. I could listen to you talk forever. This is like the absolute coolest story. Seriously. This is I'm like so in a cool. trance right now. Me too. Just, like, I'm like wait, watching no, you. No, keep going. <laughs> oh, I could I could yeah. provide you with stories for like years. Okay. <laughs> so we're like keep yeah, okay, you got it. What agenda? <laughs> okay, so you're so you're a fitness coach right now? Correct. Yes. I am okay. a coach with Orange Theory Fitness right now. Amazing. And so how much of that work or how how did your work in mental health affect what you do now? Or how has it helped in being able to effectively coach your clients? So first and foremost, I can actually empathize with my clients. I have been there. And whether you whether you're trying to lose weight or build muscle, I mean, I've done it all. Like I start, I had to lose 40 to 50 pounds and start building the physique that I've always wanted. And so it really, really has just helped me relate with my clients. And being able to open up with that to people who, you know, aren't quite comfortable being vulnerable yet or um, not quite comfortable talking about um, how uncomfortable they are with their bodies, me being able to offer that allows them to see that the trainer in front of their eyes have gone through it as well. And it just helps them feel more comfortable and helps you build rapport with your clients. So um, I love just being able to immediately say that and see their eyes light up and be like, oh, hey, like I can trust her. She knows what she's talking about because she's actually been through it as well. So it's really helped me earn the trust, but also it's helped me kind of dive deeper into my clients and not just be that trainer that's going to tell you what exercises to do and how to nourish your body because anyone can do that. But I've added that extra layer of diving in more to your emotions and the environmental factors that you go through. Because a lot of people, it seems simplistic, but it's really not. A lot of people aren't aware of things in their surroundings that are then causing them to, you know, derail their progress or reach for um, foods that they don't necessarily want to even put into their bodies, but it's that comfort food. So um, I can just dive deeper into it and um, allow my clients to make those connections so that they know what other areas in their life that they need to start revamping rather than just, you know, what they put into their bodies and how to exercise. Yeah. Yeah. What are um, some of the most common environmental triggers that you feel like come up with clients? Well, definitely stress. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Work-related and um, also eating habits of your family members, too. I don't think a lot of people realize, you know, when they have children that they are making their children maybe mac and cheese, but they're sneaking in those bites and those bites end up adding up and, you know, they are surrounded more uh, by foods in their home that they don't necessarily want, but it's for their husbands or their children. And so triggers like that, just if you're having an emotional day and those foods are in your household, it's that much harder. But also other factors could be, we just got done talking about how you just went on a retreat for work, right? And you're in this brand new environment that was completely unrelatable to you. And you're watching your coworkers kind of go out on little sleep, being able to drink all night and have a productive day the next day. Well, if you weren't so in tune with yourself and you knew that you couldn't do that, you might've been, you know, a little tempted to go out with them and, you know, you want to be included and bond with them, but you're then kind of setting yourself up for disaster the next day. And so even things like that, you know, just you're influenced by people around you. So those were definitely the most common ones, but it's interesting that most people aren't even making these connections. They're just going day by day and being like, oh, well, I ate really, I ate really bad today and I'm disappointed in myself. And that's all they think about, but they're not thinking about any of those precipitating events. So true. Guys, for a little backstory, before the show started, we were talking about how um, I was on a retreat for work, like a work summit in New York City. And before one of the nights before we went out to this bar, I was like, I have had like no protein today and I'm literally dying. I'm a shell of myself. So I went back to the hotel for a quick hour Postmated Chick fil A grilled chicken nuggets to myself, like not even just one order. The 12 two. piece? The 12 piece times two. Oh, good. 
That's like Love. a that's like what eighty four grams of protein in the two of them. Okay, but have you ever been to like a work event where they are like, oh, here's lunch, and lunch is literally no protein? Yes, yes. I for shit sure have, and it's th- like when I don't eat a protein, I can't even function. Me too. Now, I mean, I think now. probably before, but anyway. So I postmated <laughs> myself the most absurd amount of grilled chicken to my hotel room. That's ate amazing. it all. And then met all the coworkers at the bar and they were like, what will you have to drink? And I was like, soda water. <laughs> like, I know. Considering I just had like 85 grams of protein that were just like literally brined and delicious sodium. Literally, I was like, I am a walking salt tablet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that's like sometimes that's like what you got to do. I bet you felt way freaking yeah. better. Oh, my God. I felt amazing. And, and then I was like, all right, I'm cool. I'm good now. But before that, I was like, I can't go drink with you people. I need protein. <laughs> I need some protein. I like can't get back. We are, I was just talking about this with my best friend Katie who's in town. We were saying that every catered breakfast is like stale bagels with cream cheese, pastries, Aww. and cut fruit. And we're oh, like, yeah. where is how what is this Kate? How who made this breakfast? Yes. <laughs> Why is this the choice? Or like a box of cereal with like yeah. no milk. Like what? Where where are we? Catered anything is a nightmare. We're going to come back to that at the end of the show because my macro hack has to do with exactly that. But like, oh, that was, that was the situation this week at work, too. They were like, we're serving breakfast to you. And I was like, this is not breakfast. No, I've never eaten this for breakfast before. I can't help you. Sorry, I got us totally on a tangent. It's OK. But- we are a little bit on a tangent. Let's so let's go back to I by the way, the, I loved that answer, Zan. And the I think that the saying that one of the most common things that you see is like, all these habits that we picked up from our families and like not knowing that they're there. That's so real in my life. Like I find myself doing stuff that I know I picked up from my parents and I am like, Oh my God, I haven't lived home in what? 15 years. What? 10 years. When do you leave home? How old are you when you go to college? 18. (laughs) Why is math so hard? Whoa. Don't even know what's going on. Okay. So I haven't lived home in like 12 years. Yeah. I did something today that I was like, oh my God, that's something that my mom would have done. And like, it's just so it's, it's in there. It's deep. It's deep. It's woven into the fabric, fabric of our lives. (laughs) Even, I mean, going back to my college days, my roommates who had horrible eating habits, but the food is in front of you and it's so hard. And talking about those environmental factors, I mean, I went to University of Southern California. It's one of the top like party schools out there. And there was some event going on every single night. And, you know, you want to live up your college years, but, you know, on the flip side, you're like, I can't keep doing this to my body. And so it's kind of just this vicious cycle. And it wasn't until I got myself out of that environment where I could really control everything that I was putting into my body and really get my mind right in order to lose all the weight that I had gained. Right. Yeah. So it's definitely important to set yourself up for success in terms of the people you surround yourself, your social life, um, your family and all that. So, yeah. So now that we're, I mean, obviously environmental triggers are going to be huge and through coaching, you know, hundreds of women at this point, for Nat more. <laughs> Nat's had contact with, I've coached so many people. It's like actually a joke, but we know that the journey is more mental than physical in a lot of ways. And when you add up all of those, you know, the past dieting experience, the noise about, you know, on social media about what the ideal body image is, your complicated relationships with like how you grew up, you know, how you were raised, you know, what your roommate was doing, all of that fun stuff, all of those things come into play. And so in most instances, I feel like we literally have to like, like we have to like be clean slate and completely rewire our brains to get to a point where we are, you know, like we have to retrain our brains, right? We have to think differently, act differently, feel differently about the the choices we're making, everything. So how, let's talk a little bit about how you, where you even start with rewriting your, your brain. <laughs> <laughs> so the theory that I really grabbed onto while doing my clinical work in my program was DBT. So that's short for dialectical behavioral therapy. And with this therapy, it's a type of cognitive cognitive behavioral therapy that pretty much allows the client to identify and change any negative thinking patterns. 
So this theory assumes that you engage in some type of problematic behavior. So for instance, in our case, it's most likely poor eating habits or, Mm. um, yeah, so poor eating habits. And, um, it assumes that you're engaging in this behavior in order to like regulate or almost avoid any extreme emotion that you might be experiencing. So in other words, grabbing food is now become your crutch or your um, way of escaping the emotion that you're not quite ready to deal with. So what I loved about DBT was that it implemented a lot of skills. So it touched on mindfulness. It touches on distress tolerance, emotion regulation, and then interpersonal effectiveness. So with all these skills, I mean, there's hundreds, so not enough time to go over every single one, but they're all there to teach you healthier ways to manage intense emotion that you might be experiencing. Why I love it is that I feel like it covers every aspect. I mean, mindfulness, you can use that in in any walk of life. Distress tolerance, you know, those are used for in the moment if you're dealing with something and you don't quite have a solution right away. It provides you different ways to kind of um, navigate that. And then obviously emotion regulation. And then I love interpersonal effectiveness. It teaches you honestly how to kind of ask for what you want. And then also teaches you to surround yourself by people who have a positive effect on you, which is something that we were just talking about. So it definitely encompasses all areas in your life to help build more skills that you can I like to say that we're building skills to put in your toolbox so that they're ready for you whenever you need them. Oh my God, this is so interesting. <laughs> I, I love DBT. DBT, I like geek out over. So I'm like, when I, as soon as I like heard you bring that up, I was like, yes. I know. I love it. I was so drawn to it because I'm, I don't know if you guys are very worksheet related coaches, but I love, even though our clients probably hate it, giving people homework to do. <laughs> Because it's the only, you know, to build a skill, you have to practice it. And unless I felt like over the years when I was working with clients, no one was doing their practice unless I actually handed them a worksheet to fill out and to give it back to them. Yeah. I love that the initial thing you said about DBT is that you have to identify first and then change second. Which I feel like it, it's easy to like gloss over like, oh yeah, like, or to just focus on how to do all that, like how to change it and what to do. But I feel like identifying it is like maybe harder. <laughs> Absolutely. Like identifying the root of it and like where, like what it is, what like, because it's really easy to be like, I'm out of control of food. Okay, well, what does that mean? When are you out of control of food? Why is it there? What's triggering it? Like actually looking at that, I mean, it took me years and I still am trying to learn about why I am the way I am. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's bananas. Okay. That's, this is so cool. I can't handle it. Okay. So a lot of times I feel, or a lot of times our clients feel, and I felt this before too, that like changing our actions or solving the problem that we're trying to solve seems like absolutely insurmountable. And for, especially for me, I know that I've definitely had times where like, I'll engage in like, I'll actively try and change the behavior and I'll do it for like two days or three days and think like, oh, I got this under control. And then I'll just fall right back to whatever that, you know, that old behavior was and realize that like it, it's never been changed. So can you run us through the steps on like how to even approach changing our mindset? Absolutely. So I always like to start with mindfulness. So mindfulness Yes, it's teaching your client to live more in the moment, but it also, it's trying to teach your client how to gain awareness and learn to accept their emotions. So a lot of people, like, you know, if they're experiencing uh, immense sadness or whatever it may be, they want to avoid it. I mean, that's not a comfortable feeling, right? But if we continue to avoid these emotions, we're never going to learn how to cope with them. And that problematic behavior, which in most case is poor eating habits, those are just going to keep being there as your crutch. So it helps develop skills so that they can, so your clients can better manage their response in distressing situations. So like we were talking about, most individuals aren't really quite aware of certain emotions or a precipitating event that may have caused them to binge eat. But all they tend to think about is the feeling that they're experiencing after 
they binge eat, which obviously is typically negative. So then this vicious cycle just keeps happening again and again. If we begin to make emotional connections, we can tackle that emotion before we actually grab that food or enact in our problematic behavior. So the first step is to teach your client to slow down and really in times of distress, think about what emotions they're even experiencing. So I had, um, and it may not even have to be negative. So an example could be, I had a client who would always reward themselves with food because they were happy and it could be a positive emotion like that, but we need to get rid of that problematic behavior and not necessarily reward yourself with food and maybe find something else. So the first step is always mindfulness. You want your client to kind of day by day, write down the emotions that they're experiencing, any stressors, any environmental factors that they may feel be that they may feel is negatively impacting their eating habits. So overall, you just want to teach them to slow down and really focus on themselves and in the moment and what they're experiencing. So that is just the first step, which can take a long time. I mean, mindfulness is a skill that you have to develop. We have, some of us have very active brains like myself. Sometimes I can't shut my brain off and it takes much longer for me to kind of just calm down and really live in the moment and really feel what I'm experiencing. But once you do locate that emotion, the triggering emotion that they may be experiencing, it's important to learn how to sit with that feeling, however long it may last. So these problematic behaviors are created, you know, in order to avoid the emotional anguish that you might be experiencing. But if we never learn to deal with the emotions, then we're never able, we're never going to be able to let go of that problematic behavior. So this is where the next set of skills in DBT come in um, handy, like distress tolerance or emotional regulation. So like I said, I mean, there's so many different skills. It would tell me about distress tolerance. I need to know about this. Oh, I got to love this. I love distress tolerance because it gives you skills to do in that very moment if you have no idea what the solution can be. So sometimes it takes a little bit longer to um, think of an action plan or come up with a solution. So in the meantime, you want to regulate those emotions as quickly as possible so that you don't automatically go to your problematic behavior. So distress tolerances, some examples could be changing your body chemistry. And I thought this one, I'm not going to lie. When I was first learning all this, I was like, that seems so silly. But I ha- gave this task to a client and she fell in love with it. It could be as simple as holding your hand in a bucket of ice water because you're automatically thinking about how cold your hand is and like how frozen you feel. And you're auto- you're automatically focusing on that feeling now instead of the distressful moment that you might've been in. So that could even be one. You can do muscle relaxation. So that's to calm, just to calm you down by breathing and then really focusing on the different muscle groups in order to relax. There are distress tolerance skills for distracting. So there's a whole list uh, that you, you can do with activities. You can distract by forcing yourself to experience a different emotion. So I thought this one was really cool. If you're experiencing something really sad in the moment, we actually recommend, okay, pop in a TV show that makes you hysterically laugh and force yourself to watch it and see how your emotions change while you're watching it. And for me, my favorite TV show is Friends. I don't know how you guys feel about that show, but (laughs) whenever I'm sad, I'm like, I have to watch an episode of Friends. It's going to automatically make me smile and make me laugh. And it automatically changes your whole demeanor. And it's so crazy that things as simple as this um, really do help you through that moment and help you slow down and then come up with an action plan. So I'm trying to think of any... And then the other set of distress tolerance skills are self-soothing, which I think a lot of us um, neglect our self-care. So I always really love focusing on self-soothing and it gives you options to self-soothe with vision, hearing, smell, taste, or touch. And I kind of just give everyone a bunch of different ideas and see what works best for you. I can continue to use myself as an example. I love if I'm really stressed out love sitting in the bathtub and smelling a candle, things like that. So yeah, it just gives, it gives your clients different ideas and a whole list of skills that they can dive into to see what works best for them. That's so cool. Within 
I'm super curious to know more. So one of my understandings are kind of like the way that I've always kind of like associated distress tolerance. And I'm really interested to know if you feel like this is consistent or not so much, but is like sitting with that emotion, kind of like you were talking about before, but reminding yourself that like, it's not a life threatening emotion. So like really just like sitting with it and like, actively like working not to distract yourself with something else, but to just like be in that emotion and be like, my life isn't threatened. Like, cause your body, the way I've understood it is like your body can kind of react in that like flight or fight response where you're like, oh my gosh, like I'm like, you know, I'm in jeopardy or like something is like wrong. Your body doesn't really know the difference between like, you know, like somebody chasing you with like a knife and like your body just like being in this like high stress environment if there's like something going on and like sitting in that emotion where like you may be super uncomfortable and being like I am my life is not in danger like nothing is being threatened like this is okay like this is uncomfortable but like it's okay is that like something along the lines of what you consider to be distress tolerance as well or not so much no I absolutely I absolutely agree with you I think there's different levels with all the distress tolerance skills. So for instance, changing your body chemistry, like the example I gave with dunking your hand or even your head in a bucket of ice water, those are more for extreme cases. So if, you know, you're dealing with something and like, like you just feel like no matter what you're about to reach for the food that you're trying to, or your problematic behavior or whatever it might be. These are for like right away, do it so that you calm yourself down. And then like panic. Yes. And total panic mode. It's for you to do something right away to like kind of regulate those emotions. And then just like you said, Natalie, like sit with, sit with that emotion and then deal with it. So it's more of, um, different levels, I would say. And of course you don't want your client to, all the time distract themselves with activities because again, distracting yourself is not allowing them to really deal with the emotion, but it's different levels. So if you do feel like you're in that total panic mode and you're just not quite ready to sit there and come up with an action plan, you can utilize these skills to kind of deregulate those extreme emotions. And then when you're in a more stable place of being, then you can uh, come up with those solutions. So I think it goes yeah, hand in hand with that. Nat, there was a quote that I, I read with all the documentation that Zan sent me over, and it said, replace suffering and the idea of being stuck with ordinary pain and the possibility of moving forward. And I was like, that is so powerful because I when you are in that state or like when I know when I'm in like when I'm in that state or when I've been in that state it it really seems like the world is ending and that there's just there's there's just no way out of it and so this idea that it's just it's just ordinary pain and everybody feels it and you're you can move forward and it's okay that's i mean it's freaking crazy um and amazing amazing i think the mindfulness skills really help with that part as well it teaches you not to be judgmental because you know when we mess up which we all do we are not perfect those who are still judgmental are going to continue to create that vicious cycle. So it's kind of going back to that black and white thinking, right? You um, had a perfect day of eating and at the end of the night, you ended up having five cookies. Well, all my progress is out the door. I'm going to give up and yeah. Well, mindfulness teaches you that, you know, you may, you're going to mess up and not to judge yourself because, yeah, you ate five cookies, but that doesn't mean that you have to lose all your progress that you've been working on for months here. Wake up the next day and it's a brand new day. So I definitely think that's why DBT really starts with mindfulness to help teach people that, well, one, we are not perfect. We're all going to mess up. And it's how you react to your mistakes that's going to tell you like what your future is going to look like. So sure. Can we, can we use a real life example and then have you kind of like go through the chain and I'm going to use the most, probably the most common example that we get through our clients. So Natalie, actually, do you want to read this example in like a, in like a cute, I'm a client voice? Surely. (laughs) I feel like it's funnier. I'm a night eater. I eat super clean during the day. I exercise. I feel good. Every night after we have dinner, I put the kids to bed, sit on the couch, pop on the TV, and start snacking. 
I go from sweet to salty and back again for hours. It feels like I can't stop. I try stopping for a few days, but I always come back to it. Where do I start on changing this behavior? So what does that person do, Zan? So I would, the very first thing I do is conduct a chain analysis. So you want them to piece together these events. So with that little um, story that Nat just read, you're really just telling me what your problem behavior is. Okay, well, we need to backtrack and see what led up to it. So when conducting a chain analysis, it basically examines the chain of events that led to this problematic behavior. And then um, it allows the client to focus on the consequences of this behavior, and it'll help them ultimately figure out how to repair that damage by coming up with an action plan or a solution. So step one is obviously describe the problem behavior, which is the easiest step. Although sometimes, you know, it can be really difficult to say it out loud and you sometimes see your client going through that whole acceptance stage. Like, yes, this is what I engage in and this is the problem. I change it. So then I have them describe what the specific prompting event might be. So I would ask questions such as what was going on right before the thought or the impulse for that problem behavior? What were you doing, thinking, feeling, imagining at that time? Why did that problem behavior happen on that day instead of the day before? So with that little scenario, you would said. I stopped for a few days, but I always came back to it. So I would have them look at those days that they were able to not engage in that behavior and see what the difference was on that day versus the day that they did engage in that behavior. The next thing I would have them do is kind of describe any vulnerability factors. So the, I would ask what factors or events made you more vulnerable to reacting, such as stress, lack of sleep, emotions, if they have kids, if their kids were affecting them, their husband, their wife, whatever it may be, to kind of start looking at other environmental factors. So I know that you guys do this a lot with your coaching, um, with your clients, you dive more into self-reflection, which I love because that is the best way for your clients to become more in tune with themselves and their surroundings. So for them to start tracking their stress levels per day, their lack or their sleep levels, and then what emotions they might be experiencing that day. And then once they kind of write that down, they can look to see like, oh, like maybe this is why I felt like I wanted to eat all those snacks tonight and start making those connections. The next thing that I would have them do is kind of just describe the consequences they believe are happening due to this problematic behavior. So yeah, so to have them voice it out, like, this problem behavior is causing X, Y, and Z. It really just kind of puts it in their face to be like, okay, this is why I'm wanting to prevent this problem behavior from happening in right. the future. Like I feel guilty. I don't sleep well because I've eaten all this food and I wake up and then I try and delay my first meal and it's like a whole chain of events. Yes. And there's back to the whole worksheet thing because I love worksheets, but in DBT, they give you this beautiful pros and cons little like chart that um, you have every client fill out. So they write down what the problem behavior is, and then they write down all the pros and cons of holding on to the problem behavior, and then all the pros and cons of letting that problem behavior go. So really just write it out and to really make force them to sit down and see how it's affecting them. And most likely they're going to see that there's more cons than there are pros. So this worksheet is amazing to just do at the very beginning or your, maybe even your first session so that they can always refer back to the worksheet as well to see what they wrote down when they might be in times of distress. Because it's also just a really good reminder as to why they are seeking help and what problem that they're wanting to change. I love that. And at the end of that, you kind of just come up with a prevention strategy together. So looking at the chain events, where could you use a skillful behavior? So all the skills that you'll be learning in DBT, that's where they would implement it to prevent the problematic behavior to occur. So really nailing down exact the exact moment in the day that may have caused them to engage in the problem behavior and implement that skill before they reach for that food. I love the idea of focusing or doing the pros and the cons because you're not just focusing on like, okay, this is bad. I have to get rid of it. It's like, okay, well, if I do get rid of it, what are all the great things that will happen? <laughs> exactly. But also- That's huge. And it's very eye-opening in terms of they even come up with good cons too. So I've had clients say- well, if I can't engage in my binge eating, then I have to experience sadness. I won't know what to do with, my, I, I just, 
different thing, you realize like how attached they've come to this problem behavior and even letting it go is almost a loss to them as well. So it is very powerful and eye-opening to the client to see how much that they have used this as a crutch. I'm assuming that you can't just like do this worksheet once and (laughs) have everything just like work out. How important is repetition? And like, is this, this is a daily practice, I'm assuming? Absolutely. I mean, like any new skill you try to develop, it obviously takes practice and repetition. So I've always, uh, the best example I can say is to think of your brain as a muscle. So building muscle doesn't just happen overnight, right? Like we wish it would. You have to wake up every day. You have to nourish your body properly. You have to train it in order for it to become stronger. So same thing with your brain. You have to keep practicing these skills in order to make your brain, like rewire your brain almost. And by repeating these negative behaviors over and over again, you have wired your brain to crave these certain snack foods. So in order to break that wire, if if you want to say it that way, you have to kind of implement these new skills and retrain your entire brain to think of something differently. The other example I love giving, because this is like no joke and related to me, I was getting in the habit of eating, I have the biggest sweet tooth. So I was getting in the habit of eating like chocolate after every single meal. And I wasn't aware that my, I was now making this connection in my brain that after every meal I had to have something sweet. And it didn't become apparent to me until I was out to dinner with some friends and we finished dinner and we're just sitting around chatting and I just could not concentrate on what they were saying. And I all of a sudden my mouth was watering and I was thinking about chocolate and I could not stop thinking about chocolate. Well, because I didn't have that something sweet within my vicinity to kind of feed that habit, my like brain was going crazy. My body was reacting in ways that I just didn't realize was due to just eating literally chocolate after every single meal. So in order for me to break that habit, I had to pretty much for weeks force myself not to eat anything sweet after I finished a meal because Otherwise, that habit was never going to be broken. So it's not easy. Absolutely. I mean, especially having the biggest sweet tooth that I have, I want to eat chocolate after every meal. But in order to just rewire your brain, I had to stop myself from doing that. And um, the biggest thing that I always like to emphasize to clients is that food, struggling with food or disordered eating is probably one of the hardest things to tackle. And I always like to preface this to them because, you know, with any other addiction, let's say, if you're addicted to alcohol or drugs, you know, you can go day to day with avoiding those, right? Like you can go to, you can not have any alcohol um, in your household, not go to any bars, anything like that. Well, food, you cannot avoid. You literally have to eat food every single day. And that's why it's the hardest thing to do. And so I always like to preface that to clients because it's not going to happen overnight. And food, you have to sit your, you have to stare at your addiction in the face every single day and learn how to get, you know, not overindulge. So food is just as much as an addiction as drugs and alcohol. I mean, when, for instance, when I was feeding myself chocolate after every meal, what was happening in my brain was a release of dopamine. And dopamine is a chemical in your body that is kind of your pleasure, um, your reward. So it makes, releasing dopamine, it makes you experience those. So eating chocolate after every meal, I was on this high. I was happy. um, I felt rewarded. And I basically had to take that away from myself. And you're craving it. It's, It's definitely an addiction. And you've wired your brain to be addicted to the dopamine release. So you almost have to find something else besides that problematic behavior that's still going to allow you that dopamine release, but that's not going to negatively impact your lifestyle anymore. I like feel like my face is melting off watching you talk about this right now. (laughs) (laughs) This is like blowing my freaking mind. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's incredible. I mean, I if I did not have this experience at the eating disorder clinic, I would never have been able to really tap into my clients and dive even deeper into what of what might be causing these behaviors. So I definitely think it has helped me become a trainer or just having those skill sets. It helped me encompass like a well-rounded trainer, I would say. I get to help my clients physically 
and emotionally and psychologically as well. And that's something that I've always wanted to be able to do because that's not what I had in college when I was struggling. So I definitely wanted to provide that to future clients. Love it. You're an angel. You are. It doesn't, it also doesn't hurt that you're like extremely captivating. Like Natalie and I are just I know. I'm like, I was afraid I was talking too much. No, no not only you're not talking too much like I have nothing to say. I just want to keep watching you talk. I'm just obsessed with it. We we all know I'm obsessed with this topic anyway. Yes. So I'm like talk forever, please and thank you. Oh my god. <laughs> Natalie, you would have loved the research study I was a part of. Oh my god. What I was know, it? Do we have time to talk about it really quick? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So I actually worked with a lot of young children too. So ages eight to 12. And what's very different about children, and I actually think this would be really important for, you know, um, moms and dads who have children that might, you know, be developing poor eating habits while they're young. So dealing with children is a lot different than, than adults because your brain, children's brains aren't fully developed yet especially their frontal lobe. So your frontal lobe allows you to process cause and effect, consequences, future-oriented things. So if I engage in this behavior, X, Y, and Z is going to happen. Well, children can literally not do that. They are impulsive. They just can't make those connections. So you have to kind of attack it in a different way. So this research study I was a part of um, had children 8 to 12. And what we did was we forced them to sit with these emotions. And so it might sound really mean, but it was pretty effective. So we basically had them write down all of their top favorite foods, the foods that they crave on a regular basis. And what we would do is bring them into the clinic and we would have, let's say, the certain day had ice cream, pizza, and a hamburger. That was like some of their favorite foods. So we sit them in front of these foods and we have them smell it. We have them kind of just touch it, observe it. And then we also would have them just take a little bite and then have to put it down. And they had to sit there and see how their body was reacting. So um, physiological responses such as your heart racing because they're really excited that their food is in front of their face or sweaty palms because they just like, you know, that anxiety of like not being able to take another bite or um, their mouth watering, all those things. So we wanted them to kind of start making those connections. And then what we did a step further was we had them after taking that one bite, throw the food away in front of them into the trash can. Yes. I'm not joking. I, I had children crying, bawling, like absolutely out of control. And this is the emotions, the d- most distressful moment that they're going through, and they don't have those emotion regulation skills. And so we have them sit there for 20 minutes and sit with that emotion and realize, I know, I know, it sounds awful, but they eventually they eventually calm down and those cravings subside. And why you have to do it this way with children is because you can't, you can't be like, okay, so how are you going to feel later if you do eat this entire ice cream? They're, they're not going to know yeah, that. They have no idea. They have no right. idea. Whereas we could be like, oh my God, if I ate that carton of ice cream, I'm going to feel super guilty. My stomach right. is going to hurt. So that's the only way to really allow them to learn. Like, yes, this is an excruciating, painful moment, but it's going to subside. And you are then, in fact, rewiring their brain. So that, yeah, that is teaching children. Like I can learn to just take a little taste of some of my favorite foods and be able to step away from it and be satisfied. And so throughout the process and the research study, you do start implementing those emotion regulation skills as well as distress tolerance skills. And you have their parents with you as well so that you can implement it as a household. So like we said, you know, you're a product of your environment. And so you also want to set the children up for success too. But I, I thought it was fast, like fascinating. It was really, really cool. And by the end of the research study, the children could literally say they were able to take a bite of food at their home. And yeah, they might still have cravings, but it wasn't as torturous as it was at the beginning. They were no longer crying or throwing. Yeah. So it was really, really cool experience to see. That's really cool. That's incredible. Like journal club, like psychology, it's kind of similar, like research studies and like, it's like whatever, articles, psychology based. And one of the meetings that we have, I think coming up this week is about 
this study about how where if you are intaking like photos, like let's say like Instagram, like all all these like food like food photos or whatever it is, it triggers this like reaction in your brain to want those foods and like you start to like crave those foods whereas like had you just never looked at these photos or if you weren't consistently looking at photos of food or videos or whatever it is like you would not crave these foods so much or it's it's a journal club so we're going to talk more about the study and all this stuff but I'm like using myself I'm like oh my god I'm like a perfect like example I guess right now of like I don't know how to like make an example out of this. I recently deleted Instagram, which means I'm no longer looking at photos of food ever. I'm only like the only food I'm seeing is the food that I'm like physically eating. And it's interesting because I actually like since deleting Instagram, I do not have cravings for things anymore. Ugh. It's is that your macro hack of the week? Delete Instagram? Sure. <laughs> I mean, that's my life hack of the week if we're but that's a different show. But I like I can't tell you guys. It's weird. Like I'm like, wow, this is bizarre. Like I have always craved food, I think. You know, like I've just never really known myself to not crave food, but like I don't really watch TV and I'm not on Instagram. And it's like when I was a kid, I used to see commercials of like cereal and whatever it is. And I don't have cravings anymore. And I'm like, this is bizarre. That's amazing. But it's real. The brain is crazy. And marketing knows how to target you. And children, especially commercials, billboards. You know what I learned too, which I thought was really interesting? If you go into a grocery store, go down the cereal aisle, they will have the like ones that, you know, Fruit Loops and Reese's Puffs, they are going to have them at the, on the lower shelf so that children can see them. So they put the more nutritious ones higher. Oh yes. Right, right. So, so that the kids can actually, while they're walking down the aisle, see. Yeah. Yep. The ones. And then they start. So cool. It's crazy. I love this stuff. I'm like, it's so fascinating to me how like your brain is connected to all of this. I love it. That is just Thank you so much. Seriously, thank you. For being here and for taking the time to talk to us because I know your today is a particularly busy day for you, but we're so happy to have you. Thank you. Thank you. No, thank you for inviting me. Seriously, I felt very honored to be here. <laughs> uh, do you know what time it is, Nat? It's the Macro Hack of the Week, baby. <laughs> we're only going to have two Macro Hacks of the Week. Nat, why don't you do your Macro Hack? Yeah, so... I teased at this earlier in the show, but I had a wild week of cross-country travel for work. It was like every single hour from like 8 a.m. until 10 p.m. was accounted for. And I was like, oh, shit. (laughs) I got to get some protein. Like, I've got to like seek it out on my own. So I nixed the like breakfast buffet, which was like the saddest excuse. We talked about this already. Saddest excuse for breakfast ever. And there was a Starbucks because there's Starbucks everywhere, obviously. So the turkey bacon, like that reduced fat breakfast sandwich. So good. So good. Plus a Siggy's nonfat yolk. Yes. was like, I think, total of like six grams of fat, 20 or 30 grams of carbs. And then it ended up being something close to like 30 or 35 grams of protein. So you can get that's that at literally any Starbucks. Awesome. Yeah. So that's I the macro they had hack. Ziggy's is like there. that specific meal for breakfast. What? They have Ziggy's there? Sig- yeah. It's like a non-fat Ziggy's Greek yogurt. And you pair that with a breakfast sandwich and you've got little bitty fat, moderate carb, high protein. You can literally get that anywhere. So That's a really good macro hack. Yeah, gal. What's your macro hack? Mine has to do with traveling too. Oh, because I was traveling this weekend to go up to Minneapolis to visit our girl P before she died. Oh, so sad. So my macro hack of the week, which is funny because I was talking about it earlier with my best friend Katie who's in town and she was like, I did this macro hack in Heathrow in London Heathrow Airport earlier this week. Mine is to grab a smoothie as a meal replacement. Hear me out. If you are feeling very... Well, I so I feel like I get a little bit of travel anxiety sometimes, especially, you know, with like lines and TSA and just whatever. So I don't digest things very well when I'm feeling stressed and, and on the go and whatever. And and then, you know, my 
my whole, all, all the things are, are not going the way they're supposed to go. So my macro hack is when you are traveling, a really solid meal replacement is if you go to a smoothie bar or like whatever, whatever juice place or smoothie place that they have in the airport, which they always have like a rogue one. You do a scoop of protein powder, half a banana, you special order. It's fine. <laughs> it's like a quarter cup of uh, frozen blueberries, half a frozen banana, a scoop of vanilla protein powder, a little bit of nut butter, like almond butter or peanut butter, and unsweetened vanilla almond milk. So like every smoothie place will have this. The stats are like 45 carbs, like usually like between 8 and 10 grams of fat, and then like 25 grams of protein. Perfect, balanced meal. And because it's liquid and it's already kind of all blended, it's really easy to digest, especially if you're traveling. And you know when you're on an airplane and you're like in the sky, you just cannot digest anything. Bloated and farting all over the place. It's a disaster. (laughs) So that's my macro hack is seek out a smoothie place instead of getting like a weird sad salad with a hard-boiled egg on it or something that's like really not good for you. Grab a smoothie, yo. Love it. Yeah. Also, I don't want to sit next to you on a plane. I know. <laughs> I mean, to, it's not to sell yourself. I mean, it's like not good, guys. <laughs> it's really sad. It's going to be in a really interesting flight to Tokyo next or two weeks from now. Oh, Ooh. my God. Yikes, spikes. But even if – okay, <laughs> One more thing before we leave. It's not that I'm like farting and it like smells really bad because I'm not eating anything on a plane, you know, typically. It's just like I just have a lot of air Uh, when I'm on a plane. I know the feeling. Do you know what I mean? Yes. Yes, I'm just like I feel like a balloon. Yes. One time I made the mistake of wearing high-waisted jeans on a plane and literally thought I was going to die. I was like – I it's painful. Pretty sure I have an ulcer. Like everything hurts. Like this is off. Yeah, I, I get like distended belly. Yes. yes, and like you're oddly dehydrated and dry. But then Ugh. like you're so like I I always look look like I'm six months pregnant when I get off a flight, even if I haven't eaten or consumed anything other than water. Me too. I literally weighed myself after my flight back from New York, and I weighed like actually five pounds more than when I left. I did too when I got back from Minneapolis. <laughs> the next morning, I woke up and I was just just about five pounds heavier. Yeah, I was like, that's weird. <laughs> that's sad. It was probably from your 5 million grams of sodium from your Chick-fil-A. <laughs> but seriously, I like guarantee you that it was. <laughs> All right, Zan, thank you so much. Um, thank next you. episode, we have another guest. Uh, next episode, by the way, is our final episode of the season. And then we're going to take a little break. And we, we have a special guest again. We have Brian Bott. And the title of that episode is Six Pack Abs aptly named aptly named because we're debunking fitness myths so stay tuned gonna be so good yeah bye guys all right bye you guys